Well, uh, if you've got your Bibles today, we are in our fourth week of the book of Romans. Uh, Today, we hit one of what is probably the first major roadblocks of the book of Romans. Um, If you've been reading through the book with us, or maybe if you've been reading ahead a little bit over the weeks, chapter one was pretty straightforward to understand. Uh, You might remember chapter one has some of the great lines of the book of Romans, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Uh, the righteous shall live by faith, you know, the power of God to save, some of the great ones. One of my favorite phrases, the obedience of faith. Uh, You understand sort of what Paul's doing in chapter one. And when you get to chapter two, which we looked at last week, things start to get a little more complicated. But as we worked through it, you can sort of understand what's going on here. Paul's major point is that neither Jew nor Gentile are without sin, that both Jews and Gentiles will find themselves in judgment before God, and neither one can claim their obedience as their righteousness before him. But if you read ahead, when you come to chapter three, things begin to get infinitely more difficult to sort out right from the beginning of the chapter. Uh, One commentator, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great writers and commentators of the last century, said that Romans 3 verses 1 through 8 may be the most complicated section of Scripture in the entire New Testament. Uh, So buckle up, we've got a little work out of it. That's a great introduction, isn't it? That finds you all saying, yes, exactly what I've been looking forward to. Uh, It's not an easy passage of Scripture to unpack. And given Romans' reputation for being one of Paul's most complex letters, to find ourselves in one of the most difficult sections of that letter, well, we're up against trying to understand what Paul was doing in this passage. And it takes a little more unpacking and a little more work than maybe some of the stories or writings elsewhere. In these verses, what you're going to see is Paul is having a kind of theoretical debate between a a questioning listener. So someone who might be hearing Paul's previous arguments, Paul anticipates some of the questions or some of the concerns that that listener, that reader might have, and Paul enters into a kind of imagined debate or conversation with that person, a kind of question back and forth as you're going to see in the passage. Paul's anticipating the objections of really some of the most hostile of his audience, and he attempts to sort of overcome those objections right here from the very beginning of the letter. Uh, I want to do this this morning. I want to jump in and read it pretty quickly. We're only looking this morning at eight verses. I'm actually going to read through verse nine, uh, which we'll look at next week also. So just nine verses, a short section, but you'll see why. We've got quite a bit to unpack on it. So uh, Romans chapter three, verses one through nine. So Paul brings up this first theoretical question. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Remember how these are connected to last week. We'll come to this, but uh, uh, chapter two where we left off. What is the advantage to the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, is Paul's answer. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, Paul answers. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. 
we're going to pause right there. You guys got all of that, right? Clear? We can move right on to the rest of the chapter? Uh, You probably had the same experience I have. Most of us do when we read that. I'm going to have to read it a few more times to sort out what Paul is saying. Um, We're only looking at those first nine verses, and it may sound, uh, for me to say this, not like a deeply spiritual point, but part of what I hope we accomplish this morning is to show you that if you really take your time with, with complex passages of Scripture like this, you can actually sort out and understand what Paul is attempting to say. I know many of us read stuff like this, get a little bit frustrated we don't understand it, and pretty quick move on to something that might be more understandable to come. Uh, But there actually is, with a little bit of discipline and focus, there's a point that Paul's making here. It's an important point, and it's a discernible point, something we can understand. In Bible college, one of the things that we would often do in classes, if you took a book study, they would sometimes make you write an outline of the entire book. So you would have to read through it and sort of try to outline the argument. And on complex passages like this, you might even do what's called a sentence diagram. Did any of you do this maybe in like a middle school, high school uh, English? You would actually break down the clauses and find the verbs and figure out the structure of the sentences and exactly what's being said and how it relates to the next sentence. Uh, uh, I hated doing that in Bible college because it was so time-consuming, right? You wanted to get to the point and move on. But I found myself this week having to do that sort of thing with this passage. Word by word, phrase by phrase, connecting thoughts, figuring out what Paul's trying to do. It's easy, after doing all that work, to come to the conclusion that Paul is being a little bit confusing in his writing. Uh, You sort of say to yourself, Paul, why couldn't you have just been more clear? Taken a little more time, made this a little bit more simple for us. Um, Many of you know our own Paul. Paul Smith uh, is a longtime editor. If the Apostle Paul turned in this kind of writing to you, one of the things you would have marked up and fed back was, nobody is following what you're saying here. Please edit this and make more sense out of it. And it's easy to think that that's what's going on, that Paul was in some sort of a rush to get this thing out, and it may make sense in Paul's genius mind, and as he's scribbling it down furiously, the rest of us for centuries are trying to sort out exactly what he was thinking. But just because we struggle with a passage, this is an important thing to understand about the Scripture, doesn't mean that Paul's original audience would have found it as confusing as we do. In fact, Paul is probably uh, just briefly introducing questions that are already known to his audience, and all of these questions are ones that Paul's going to take up later on in the book in more detail, chapters 9 and 10 and 11 in the book of Romans. Probably Paul's audience would have anticipated and have already been thinking about these questions when they were reading the previous sections of Romans. Paul's writing into a world and a set of arguments and ideas that already existed. So when he writes to these questions, these are things people were thinking and asking as strange as they may seem to us. Um, I was trying to think of an analogy to make this work for you this morning. Today is Super Bowl Sunday, as you know. Uh, and it's not just Super Bowl, it's the Chief Super Bowl, so several of us are excited about the, the game today. But I want you to imagine for a minute yourself that you knew absolutely nothing about football. You had never watched a football game in your life, you understood nothing about the rules of football, you've never held a football or thrown a football before, you, could, uh, you couldn't care less about the fact that there was a Super Bowl or a football or whatever that game is today. Um, Basically, I'm asking you to imagine that you're my wife, Ashley. So if you could do that for us this morning, then you'll be in a good... I cleared that joke with her, by the way, so I'm not in trouble. So uh, imagine you know nothing about what's happened today. If you knew nothing about football, and you knew nothing about how it was played, and you overheard me and maybe Dan or somebody like that standing in the lobby this morning talking about the game coming up today, and you heard me say something like, yeah, I feel pretty good about our odds today, 
We're just going to have, it's just going to come down, we're going to have to come up with a couple of big stops, shut down their running game, and try to make old Jimmy beat us with his arm. We can't start slow like we have the last two games. We need to get ahead and stay ahead, but it could be a shootout. If you knew nothing about football, that paragraph would make absolutely no sense to you. Some of you are saying it made absolutely no sense to me, right? But somebody who's been following the Chiefs and knows about the 49ers and the Chiefs and knows what today's game is probably going to be like can probably track with that and say, yeah, that's exactly how I was thinking about the game. I say that to say that the Bible is not as confusing as it appears to us on the surface. We just come to it not fully understanding the world in which it was written and the meaning that Paul was trying to communicate, something like overhearing a conversation you know nothing about. It doesn't mean that it's impossible to understand. It just means that we have to be a little more patient, ask a few more probing questions, understand a little bit about what Paul is trying to get to, and we can figure it out. Take our time, think about how it relates to what Paul's saying and the world we know around it, and it actually, that conversation starts to make some sense. So what was Paul's point last week in chapter 2 that leads us into these theoretical questions? Just because the Jews knew the law didn't mean that they were superior to the Gentiles who didn't. That was what Paul was trying to say. Just because the Jews knew the law didn't mean that they wouldn't face judgment, that their lives were somehow exempt from consideration of God because they had the law. Paul ended the chapter, chapter 2, by saying something that's really, really shocking in his context. Remember it, he said, For no one is a Jew who merely is one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. So, expecting that his audience would have been just as shocked by that sentence as we could imagine they would be, Paul sets up a series of theoretical questions that he knows a statement like that would have created in his original audience. And look at it in verse 1. Having just heard that statement, a true Jew is not one who is outwardly circumcised, but one who has a circumcised heart by the Spirit. Verse 1, the person would say to that, then what's the advantage of being a Jew? What difference does it make if I'm circumcised? Why did God ask for Jews to be circumcised? Why did God call this people and lead this people? Uh, Clearly, if that's your view, Paul, then there must be no advantage to being Jewish at all. So why are we even talking about Jew and Gentile? Let's just all drop the Jew thing. That's exactly the question that his listeners, probably in a place like Rome, where we know there was some tension between these two groups, would have been asking. The path through this tension is just to abandon Judaism and let's go do this new thing that God is doing. What's the advantage of keeping all of this complexity? But you saw how he continues. Look down in verse 9, then this next of these questions, the sort of major ones. There's ones in between, but the next big objection. What then? Are we Jews any better off? So these two questions become the objections, these two groups that Paul's trying to speak to. What's the advantage of being a Jew? What's the advantage of talking about circumcision? And what then? Are the Jews any better off for having been Jews? Um, I came across a kind of paraphrase that Tim Keller had in his commentary on Romans that I thought was really helpful. And what he does is he takes these questions fit in this first century world and he tries to write them in such a way that they make more sense to us reading from our perspective back on the history. So I want to read you his questions as a kind of paraphrase and then we'll unpack what's going on in the logic of these questions. But this is how he says it. Question. Paul. Are you saying that there is no advantage to biblical religion, what God has been doing amongst his Jewish people? Paul's answer, no, I'm not saying that. There is great value in having and knowing the words of God. Question, 
Yes, but those words have failed, haven't they? Because so many haven't believed the gospel of righteousness revealed in God's son, Jesus. What has happened to God's promise? Was he unfaithful to his promise? Paul's answer. Despite his people's failure to believe, God's promises to save are still advancing. Our faithlessness only reveals how committed to his truth he is. Think of what he's doing here, right now, in order to show you faithful, fulfilling his promise. Next question. But if our unrighteousness is necessary for God's righteousness to be seen, if I have to know I'm a sinner, I said something like this to you the last couple weeks, if the worse I understand my own sin to be, the more I understand how good God is, that's the question, how is it fair for God to then judge me for recognizing my sin? Paul's answer, on that basis, God would not judge anyone in the world. And we, Paul and the religious Jews, all agree that God should judge the world. He should fix the world. It's what we want God to do, to put things back together. Next question. Well then, if me sinning makes God look better, that means that I should sin more, shouldn't I? So that his glory is more clearly seen by this comparison with my sin. This is the part in chapter 1 where God says when we, uh, or Paul says when we indulge in sin that our thinking becomes futile, right? You sort of catch that in this, right? Maybe I should sin so God looks better. Paul's answer. I've been accused of thinking that too, and I certainly don't. And saying you're sinning so that God will love you is an attitude that is absolutely worthy of judgment. That's verses one through eight in this paraphrase. So what I want to look at this morning are those two sort of guiding questions throughout it. Is there an advantage for being Jewish? which is really a broader question about, is there an advantage for knowing God's law? Is there an advantage to having this message of God? Um, In Keller's paraphrase, he calls it biblical religion, this testimony of God. Is there an advantage? And are the Jews, are those who have it, any better off before God? So this first question about advantage. Um, In chapter 2, as Paul talked about how God was creating this new people, this new covenant, not by physical circumcision, but by a circumcision of the heart. It's not hard to imagine a Roman Gentile hearing this letter being read and starting to feel quite good about themselves. He might have imagined that he was taking the place of a Jew. If God was forming a new people and it was no longer about the law and circumcision, then we are that new people. We are the new Jews, God's new chosen people. The Jews, after all, had failed God over and over and over. Go read the story in the Old Testament. They're constantly failing for what God asked. So God, this person might have imagined, has abandoned his promises to them and instead started over new and created new promises for us. God is doing something new by giving us Jesus. They reject him, but we receive him. God wasn't looking for obedience or concerned about laws or outward signs. God is interested in love and forgiveness and faith, and it's all new, and we're a new people for it. So after hearing in chapter 2, Paul's audience must have thought, is there any advantage to being a Jew? If God is doing this new thing in new ways with a new Messiah who's come, why care about anything that came before it? Let's just receive what is here, and it's all good. The logical answer for Paul's audience probably would have been, is there any advantage to the Jew? Of course not. Clearly there's not. Look at what God's doing amongst the Gentiles. That was Paul's whole point, right? Chapters 1 to 2, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Both are under sin. There's no advantage then. If we're both equal, there's no advantage to being Jewish. A little bit of a hint. Paul's going to disagree with that in a moment, but I want to indulge the question a little bit more. 
the word here for advantage is not quite the right word. Advantage sounds to me kind of like competitive. Like, am I, am I, am I winning over the other person? Is my advantage, my score run up over them? Um, really, this idea of advantage has more to do with the idea of abundance or excess. The idea might be something like value. Is there value in being Jewish? Is there value in understanding how God has been at work amongst his people? Is there value in this old, Old Testament religion that we've heard about? Is there anything here that's worth holding on to? Um, it's the same word that Jesus uses in John 10.10. 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Um, abundantly, advantage, that's actually the same word in the Greek. This is this idea, is there something abundant, something valuable, something worth holding on to in what these Jews have? That might sound like an odd question to us. Probably most of you have not sat around and pondered the value of the Jewish faith within our faith today. It just seems like an old question, not something we wrestle with. That's the kind of thing that any of you have probably uh, uh, never come up against in conversations or debates. No imaginary person is asking you that question. Um, is there an advantage to being Jewish? Not something that comes up at coffee with friends. Uh, that's what I first thought when I thought about, the, about the, uh, the passage. I thought, okay, this is a sort of ancient question. But the more I worked on this passage, the more it struck me that there is a very current debate. And this question comes up actually in pretty profound ways in our own day. As New Testament Christians, the question is, is there any value to what we have inherited or what we've heard from the Jews? Is there any value to this story of how God has worked with this people group across history? Or, as New Testament Christians, do we not have everything we need just here in Christ? I mean, after all, as Gentiles, as Christians of the New Testament, we have the Holy Spirit and salvation and the Great Commission. We've been called his people just like they were. We have the full promise of eternity before us. Uh, so if I could be crass about it, one might wonder, who cares about Jewish history? Who cares about the history of how they failed along throughout the Old Testament? Most of the Old Testament anyways, so many people would say, is confusing and archaic and difficult to understand and read. Even in our own day, there are many Christians who have gotten so caught up in this idea of being God's new people that this layer of anti-Semitic idea creeps in even to the church. You see how that feels both true of Paul's time, let's just move on to what God's doing now, and also feels very much like something you might hear a friend to say. I love the New Testament God, but that Old Testament God is confusing. Why can't we just focus on the good part in the second half? I believe in Jesus I just don't know about all that stuff, the Old Testament in particular. Um, a little over a year ago, Andy Stanley published a book called Irresistible. I don't know if some of you heard it or read it. It caused quite a bit of controversy when it came out. Um, Andy was looking for a way because he observed culture, those kinds of conversations with friends, and he recognized that fewer people today are growing up knowing the Bible, understanding the biblical stories. And when you attempt to share faith with a person who has no biblical context and you make an appeal to Scripture, what well, the Scripture says, that doesn't really work if they don't know it and don't care about the authority of it. So he was looking for a way that you could sort of introduce people to faith that didn't depend on the Bible. That sounds good. Um, particularly his concern was the Old Testament, though. And he wrote this. He said, Modern Christianity relies too much on the Old Testament. The problem with the modern church is our incessant habit of reaching back into the old covenant concepts, teachings, sayings, and narratives. And he goes on another place to write to his reader, would you consider unhitching, that was sort of the controversial phrase, unhitching your teaching 
of what it means to follow Jesus from all things Old Covenant. This is necessary because when it comes to stumbling blocks of faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list. Put simply, when people struggle to believe, the Old Testament is usually the culprit. Now that struck me as exactly the sort of thing that Paul was wrestling with in chapter 3. If God is doing a new work outside of the Jews, if there's now no difference between Jew and Gentile, and if God is no longer worried about us fulfilling the law, but now there's a new law through Christ, if the way we act and what he's judging is no longer dependent on the rules of the Old Testament, what advantage is there to holding on to anything Jewish? What advantage has the Jew? What advantage is this story of the Old Testament? What Andy Stanley was proposing was that the way forward to reach people was to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament and only speak about Christ and what Christ fulfills and calls for in the New Testament. The same sort of thing must have been happening in a place like Rome. The way out of this conflict between Jew and Greek is just to abandon all the Jewishness and just lean into what Christ is doing new in this new covenant. So how does Paul answer that question? Is there any advantage to the Jew, this long story of God working amongst this people? Paul says, many advantages and in every way. Not exactly what you would expect from the chapter before. There's no, both Jew and Gentile are the same under sin, same judgment. But Paul says, yet there are many advantages in every way to this Jewish faith. Paul couldn't disagree more with the question that he was receiving from that audience. The Jews had an advantage in every way for understanding what God was doing. Now, what is that advantage? Well, Paul says he gives one of them to begin with. So the first one, you may have had plenty more on his mind, but the first one he gives us here in Romans is this. See it in the text? To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jews had an advantage I like the word value over advantage. You see how it works here. They had this value, this abundance, because they had been given the story, the revelation of who God was, the oracles of God. Now, the word Paul uses is that they have been entrusted with who God is. Notice, Paul doesn't see the Old Testament as out of date or irrelevant unhitching it from this new faith, this new thing Jesus is doing. He says that those who understood what the Jews had, had this abundance and richness to understand what God was now doing. It's their advantage, the oracles of God. Paul wouldn't have understood the term old and new as if one was sort of out of date and one was new, right? When Paul writes from the scriptures, he's writing from the Old Testament text that this is the continuing story of what God is doing. There's one story with this critical turning point in Christ, but all of it deeply connected. The idea of the Jews being entrusted with this message is really important for you to understand how Paul saw that Jewish community now within the body of Christians. When you entrust somebody with something, you give them an object of value, maybe it's a a secret, maybe it's a physical option, maybe it's money, and you expect them to prove that trust. I've entrusted it to you. I'm trusting that you'll do with this thing what I'm expecting of you. Um, If I entrusted Barry this morning with my wallet and I said, would you go and get me a coffee and come back before the second worship set because I need it? Uh, This idea of me entrusting it with him comes with a kind of expectation of fulfillment. Paul doesn't say, I'm gifting you this oracle of God. It's yours, have it. He doesn't say, I've seen how obedient you are, Israel, so I'm giving you this revelation of who I am. 
He says, I'm entrusting it to you, which implies this kind of expectation of fulfillment. There's something here you're to do with what has been entrusted to you. Israel was called not just to receive that oracle of God, but to put it into practice. And if you know the Old Testament, you know what that was supposed to accomplish, that Israel would be the salt and the light of the world, that they would bless all the nations, that all the nations would understand God because of the uniqueness, the peculiarity of the way that the Jewish people lived and followed him. That this entrusting of the oracles of God to the Jews was so that they would be able to shine a light to the whole world on who God is and what he values and what it means to live under his authority. Now instead, what do the Jews do? Well, over and over the prophets criticized them for hoarding that entrusted truth. They sought only to protect it and to close the circle in tight so that it might be held within their nationality. They used the law as a distinction from the world, and they used the law to judge other sin and to protect their own identity. One commentator used this analogy that I thought was helpful. Um, If a mailman suddenly realized that they had an unbelievably valuable letter in their mailbag that they were sent to deliver, some important document, some valuable thing, and instead of delivering that critical, valuable letter, they said, wow, this, uh, this letter is so valuable and I've been entrusted with it, so I'm just going to keep it in my bag. They've kind of missed the whole point of what they've been entrusted with. It wasn't the object. It was the fact that they would deliver that object. That's what gave it value. Um, if Barry came back saying, with no coffee, right, and he said, uh, I, I was so careful with your wallet and I, that trust meant so much to me that I had decided to just hold it here and do nothing with it. I would say, Barry, you sort of missed the point of me asking you to take my wallet and go buy me a cup of coffee, right? What I entrusted you with, you misunderstood what that trust meant and you didn't do anything with it. That's kind of what Paul thinks is going on here, that the Jews had been entrusted with this message of who God is. And unfortunately, they had used it to draw distinctions and to protect their identity and to hoard that truth. And then he says, go back into chapter two. Remember what Paul said? God's name is cursed amongst the Gentiles because of you. In other words, Paul says, instead of being a light to the world, instead of helping people see who this God is, the world has looked at the way you've hoarded your truth, the way you've drawn distinctions from them, and instead they've cursed your God because of you, instead of revealing who your God is. So too, the Jews were so careful to keep the law that they missed the whole point of what that entrustment was supposed to do. Now, Paul doesn't think this is true of every single Jew that ever lived, had ever received the revelation of God. But as a whole, the Old Testament testimony of how the people had lived, their own prophets make this point over and over. But Paul says this, there were still advantages for having known who God was for having been entrusted with it. You had received something. And though the Jews had failed to do everything with what they had been entrusted, there was still an advantage. So then comes the natural counter-response. This is the next question that his sort of interlocutor says. If there was such an advantage to knowing the law, then how come so many of the Jews along the way failed? If it's such an advantage to know who God is and have this revelation of God, then how come the Jews, all of them didn't get it right? How come some of them were unfaithful to God? And don't those Jewish failures, if so many of them failed along the way, doesn't it prove that ultimately God's law, what he had entrusted them, had failed them too? If what God was doing amongst them didn't produce faithfulness in them, 
And maybe God's unfaithful as well. God hadn't fulfilled his promises to them. Uh, our sort of Western pragmatic way of saying that is, if the religion doesn't work, doesn't it mean you should re- reject the God? If it doesn't pay what you're expecting it to pay, then clearly it's not worth anything. It's not real. It's not true. Doesn't their unfaithfulness prove God's inability and unfaithfulness to see things through? Do you see that question that Paul raises? This is where Paul won't give up any ground. His response, by no means. This is not the point to take away from what he's saying. Let every man in the world be a liar and God will still prove himself to be true. Now, Paul does something really interesting and I think really smart here at this point to make this point. He turns to a famous psalm. Um, This is where I'm sure all of you recognized immediately, oh yes, Psalm 51. He's referencing us back to David, right? You all got that when you read this passage? Probably not. Uh, One of the complexities for us understanding what Paul is saying, you all looked at me like you really wanted to be A students and you were like, yes, yes. Uh, I know you didn't. It's okay. I did not recognize immediately Psalm 51. One of the challenges we have of understanding what Paul is doing is when we read passages like this, Paul assumes that his audience has a rich vocabulary and memory of the Old Testament, particularly places like the Psalms. And when he mentions one of these phrases from a Psalm, I know this is hard for you to believe, he assumes that his reader pretty much has that Psalm memorized and will pull in the meaning of the full Psalm from him just dropping a line of it. You may not be able to do this with the Psalms. I don't have an example for you, but if I dropped a single line from a movie, Most of you would recall it and pull in the whole meaning of that movie, all the scenes in the movie. It's the same sort of thing Paul's doing here with the psalm. When he drops an allusion to one of really one of the famous psalms, he assumes that everyone would have understood what that psalm meant, where it's coming from, and it actually makes his point in an interesting way. So Psalm 51 is David's famous psalm of repentance when Nathan confronts him about his sin with uh, with Bathsheba and Uriah. So one of the famous songs from the book of Psalms. David had the advantage of the promise of God and a relationship with God. David was God's king who he had called, a man he described as after his own heart. If you wanted to say who is an Old Testament character who had an advantage of knowing God, David's a pretty good one to put on that list. David had been promised that his descendants, that his throne would be eternal, that one would come from him who would rule for all eternity. This is a man who has a lot of advantages you could check on his side. So what did David do with all those advantages? Well, Psalm 51 is a reminder that he committed adultery and murder and wrecked his family and abdicated his royal responsibilities of leading God's people and squandered the advantages that he had. But Psalm 51 is also a reminder. What does David do? He repents. And what does God do in light of his failures? God proves himself to be faithful to David, to fulfill David's promises, even when David had failed. When the biblical authors drop this line from Psalm 51, what it assumes that you will do with it is fill in this whole story and scene that that psalm is written out of. And anyone who knows Psalm 51 wells knows that actually the line that Paul's quoting is not the most famous line from the psalm, really the shocking and most famous line that he assumes you're going to draw out of your memory when he references Psalm 51 is the line at the end, the sacrifices of God, this is Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now, what does that sound like? It sounds like this shocking line Paul has at the end of chapter 2, that God is not looking at outward circumcision, 
but the circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Paul is connecting two things in a remarkable way, and he's saying it in a way that cuts so brilliantly against these questions. What he's saying is that all of those Jews like David who had every advantage possible and who yet still failed God came to the very conclusion that I'm telling you, that all along what God has been seeking is not sacrifices and offerings and obedience and national identity, but David himself realized that what God has always been after is a broken and a contrite heart who will bow in submission before him. So why is Paul making this connection? With all of David's advantages, he understood the very thing that Paul had just said. It's not about public reputation. It's not about obedience. It's not about fulfilling expectations, religiosity, about protecting the law, holding the law. As David says in that psalm, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. It's not about the fulfillment of the law. It existed to bring a person to this place of a circumcised heart. And Paul is saying, this has been what God is at work doing from the very beginning. What advantage has the Jew? Well, the advantage David has is having realized from the beginning the very thing I'm saying to you now. God has always wanted a humble people. Not sacrifices and bulls and offerings and circumcisions, but all of those existed to bring a person's heart to him. David, the great king of Israel, had said the very same thing Paul was doing. Now imagine yourself a hostile Jew in argument with Paul, trying to draw a distinction. So you're saying that there's no value in being Jewish. And Paul says to you, your great king, God's king, the man after his own heart, David himself, who's promised to have an heir who's eternal, who, by the way, is Jesus, said the very same thing that I'm saying to you now. Paul makes a good point. You guys got all that when you read this passage, right? When you saw the reference to Psalm 51. The Jews had this witness from the very beginning that God was faithful. But so many of them, instead of recognizing it and sacrificing their own way and circumcising their hearts, they missed what he was calling them into by his faithfulness. That's something worth thinking about for all of us. The Jews had this witness to God's faithfulness, but so many of them presented to the world instead their own faithfulness instead of humbling their heart and leaning into his faithfulness. Finally, Paul gets to the really contorted question at the end of this little discussion he's imagining. So what you're saying, Paul, is that God's faithfulness and goodness is most revealed when I sin. I mean, after all, when did God show himself to be most faithful to David? When David repented and had this great sin before all of the people and confessed it. So in other words, when I sin and confess my sin, the bigger my sin is, the more God shows himself to be faithful. When I'm unfaithful, God looks more faithful. So maybe we should all sin more and be more unfaithful so that the whole world will see how much more faithful God is. That may sound like a really strange question to you, like you would not think that. But Paul anticipates this is one of the questions. And once again, when you stop and actually think about what's being suggested, we might not use these words, but I actually think there is something here that is just as much modern as those previous questions. Paul gets this a lot, right? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? It sounds like an ancient question. I actually think it expresses something very modern. You've probably heard it like this. God is grace. We know that. That's what this book says. God is love. That grace is bigger than any of us could possibly comprehend. So far, so good. 
So what I do doesn't really matter that much because God forgives all and understands all. And in the end, he'll save us all from everything that's happened. God's grace is so big that my sin and how I live, remember, I have no chance of getting it right anyways. It doesn't really matter because ultimately God's grace is bigger than all of it. That sounds like something you would might hear somebody say with coffee today. How can we really know God will forgive it all in the end? I'm doing my best. I'm a good person. But ultimately, my sin is not what God is most focused on. Paul says instead, by no means. If God is glorified by our sin so that he can show himself faithful, then he could never bring about the kind of judgment that will fix and bring meaning to this world. This is Paul's point. If we go on sinning to show God faithful, then how does God ever straighten this world out? The world would continue to spiral and be worse and worse, and our own lives more and more painful and difficult. And ultimately, God's plan is not to let us spiral into chaos so that he might rise above it. But his plan is to come down by judgment and to sort out this world and to right every wrong and to heal every brokenness and wipe away every tear so that ultimately we might be lifted out of it into his righteousness. So you can finally imagine Paul's sort of imaginary opponent here throwing up his hands in verse 9, the final protest. So if the Jews have this great advantage, what then? Are the Jews just better off than the rest of us? And one more time, Paul says, no, not at all. Let me unwrap this for you. To know the truth about who God is is an unbelievable advantage, a value, an abundance, a richness, this testimony of how God has been faithful to his people. But knowing that God has been faithful does not earn you some sort of special position before him. To be able to testify to the way that God has been faithful to you in your life is not evidence of your faithfulness or your righteousness or your position before him. All of us will stand before God. All of us will have our lives exposed. All of us will be shown to be under sin. All of us will come to the full realization that our deepest need is that we have not lived up to what we say and know is the truth. This is where Paul is ultimately working to, that our lives all ultimately depend on a question of faith. Because any attempt to stand before God in what you know or what you've accomplished or what God has done in your life before is not evidence of your righteousness. An advantage? Absolutely. An abundance, a richness, the miracles that you've seen, the words that you've received, the ways the Spirit has led you and drawn you, evidence, abundance, richness, and advantage? Absolutely. Righteousness? No. Are you better off because God healed you? Are you better off because God saved you? Are you better off because somehow he led you and taught you and helped you straighten out all of your theology? The only thing that matters is how your heart responds to his drawing and calling. A broken and a contrite heart who humbles itself. So what does it mean for us? Before God, all of us are under sin. This is Paul's big overarching point he's attempting to work out. Um, I've heard it described this way. Uh, If you have a crack in your windshield and another person has a crack in their windshield, both windshields can be cracked in different ways and in different severities. 
but both of you would say, I have a cracked windshield. (laughs) And both of you would say, this windshield needs to be replaced. It is true that all of us are under sin. Does it mean that your sin are as egregious as someone else's? No, but ultimately, standing before God, you are just as much under sin, just as much in need, and just as much without an excuse, and just as much without righteousness as the next person. All of us are broken. And God is ultimately right to judge that sin. The only way the world gets put back together, the only way wrongs get straightened out, is for him to come down and judge right and wrong. And unfortunately, all of us get caught up in that. All of us have committed wrong. But the possession of this truth is an abundance that we should not make little of. Those who have the truth realize something deeply profound. God is faithful to his promises even when we are not. This is the great legacy of all of Israel's story that is so rich and so valuable that throughout their history, God walked with them and persevered with them and aided them and gave to them and was faithful to them after they failed time and time again. To know this says something profound about you and about the God you serve. Paul has been pushing in these chapters two parallel tracks that I promise will come together. We are far more lost and under judgment than any of us would like to admit, yet God is far more faithful to seeing his promise fulfilled than we could have ever imagined. And where those two tracks meet is where Paul is ultimately working towards, to know my sin and to know the faithfulness of God. I want to say to you this morning, hopefully you see what Paul's been saying in this chapter, I want to say to you that there is an unbelievable advantage to knowing the faithfulness of God. Is it enough to claim as your righteousness? No. But is it an advantage to know that he has been faithful to you? Absolutely. And when you stand before him, as we're going to see, that knowledge will become the thing, faith, which God is working and leading through his faithfulness. Where does salvation ultimately come from? It's where Paul's working. And it won't be your knowledge of his faithfulness, but a willingness to have, as he said from the very beginning, a broken spirit, a contrite heart, a willingness to humble yourself before him, to repent and recognize your need for him. And ultimately, as Paul is going to say, faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Um, this morning, we're going to celebrate communion as we do on the first, of, uh, the first Sunday of the month. Barry, you can come up. But one of the things that always strikes me about communion is that Paul, in 1 Corinthians, positions that communion as a kind of remembering. Um, we'll read the passages we do almost every time we do communion. Remember, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, what Paul is saying is, I think, very similar to what he says in this passage. The communion we take is not an act of salvation. We don't take this communion so that we might be saved by the communion. We do this communion as an act of remembering. This is the advantage. This is the abundance. To remember that God is faithful. To remember what God has done. To remember the ways that he sacrificed while we were still in sin. When we take these elements, what we proclaim is that God has been faithful. And that we will live by his faithfulness and hold on to his faithfulness. Do this remembering me is the way that Paul puts it.